Trust everyone had a uh, Merry Christmas and are looking forward with hopeful anticipation to 2016. Well, if you will, turn with me this morning to the Epistle of Philippians. We'll be reading chapter 3 and beginning with verse 7. We'll read together down through verse 11. Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as we approach a new year, we are reminded from your word, Lord, that there is nothing in this life that is dearer, that is more important than knowing you sweet Jesus. And so we pray now that you would come near, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that your word would be a lamp to our path and a light to our feet, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, help us to hear that which you would have us to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the sermon this morning, Knowing Christ. If I were to ask you to summarize for me your Christian experience, what would you say? What words would you use? What elements would you choose to focus on? What things would you choose to overlook? In many respects, when we think of the Apostle Paul and his epistle to the Philippians, that is what he's doing. This is one of the prison epistles, one of the epistles he wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome. And to the church at Philippi, he says something that really can be summarized in the 10th verse here of our text. He explains the totality of the Christian experience. He lets them know exactly what it means to be confident in our salvation, to be confident in our justification, and to know Christ. And so as we look at this passage, there are three things that I would like to hone in on this morning. The first, and they're all three there in your bulletin, the first is the end of self-reliance. Knowing Christ evokes these, at least two of these things that we'll look at today. The end of self-reliance. Secondly, the end of self-assertion. And then finally, the power for righteous living. But the first one, the end of self-reliance. If we look at uh, the very first few verses here of chapter 3, really Paul addresses what should be the source of confidence in the life of a believer? Why should a believer be confident that their salvation is secure? Why should they be confident that when they stand before God, they are justified, they are considered righteous 
in his eyes. And it's interesting because he, he really takes the uh, bulk of verses 1 through verse 8 uh, to, to talk about the source of Christian confidence. And in order to understand this, we need to first understand the, the various influences that were prevailing within the Philippian church at the time. In fact, even uh, the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi, interestingly enough, was a colony that was started uh, around 30 BC by the Emperor Octavian. And he founded this colony with the intent of giving Roman military officials a place to retire people who were not previously citizens of Rome. If you remember, the Roman Empire was vast and they conquered uh, numerous territories. And with each new territory that they conquered, uh, oftentimes if you wanted to purchase or if you wanted to uh, obtain citizenship, one of the quickest ways of doing so was to be involved in the military. And so the city of Philippi was established as a place where people who were retired military individuals could go and, and enjoy the rights and enjoy the freedom of having a Roman citizenship. So uh, we, we can assume that at least a lot of the people who lived there were former military and that they looked to their past experiences to justify the current benefits that they were experiencing. Secondly, there were those within Philippi that Paul references in the first few verses of, of chapter 3 uh, known as Judaizers. These are individuals who said that you had to keep the law in order to be justified in the sight of God. And really, it's to both that the Apostle Paul is speaking. He speaks, speaks specifically to the Judaizers, but also indirectly he speaks to those who might find confidence in any other means, in any other place other than Christ. And so he talks about confidence, and he actually begins by saying that if anyone has a reason to boast, if anyone fits the bill, truly the Apostle Paul does. And he talks about the fact that he was pure in lineage, that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that he was circumcised the eighth day, and that when it came to the law that he adhered to the most strict and most observant sect of Judaism, which was known as uh, the Pharisees. And then he went on to say that uh, not only was he a Pharisee, but in his zeal, he actually persecuted the church prior to coming to faith. And then he makes a statement which is rather interesting in light of where the Apostle Paul ends up taking us. At the very end of verse 6, he says, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, he said, look, if anyone has an opportunity to boast, I have an opportunity to boast. I fit the bill. I was under the law blameless. But then he differentiates between two definitions of righteousness. He starts out there with a human understanding of righteousness, an understanding of righteousness that is, deep, that is independent and that looks to Morality, right living, adherence to the law, all the characteristics that the Apostle Paul mentions in the first few verses that looks to those characteristics to justify one standing in the sight of God. And then he goes on to provide a new definition of righteousness. Not righteousness that is independent, righteousness that stands alone that you and I somehow lay claim to because of our superior morality or because of our superior lineage, but rather a righteousness that only comes through faith in Christ. It is a righteousness that comes from God. 
And so we see here that whenever uh, he starts the text, the passage, he says, whatever I considered gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, were all those things that he mentioned bad? No, they were not bad. In fact, I would suggest they attributed to his morality. The fact that he grew up within the covenant community of Israel, the fact that he was taught by one of the leading rabbis of the day, Rabbi Gamaliel, the fact that he was a Pharisee, none of these things were bad. However, none of them, and this is what the Apostle Paul is ultimately pointing the church of Philippi and also you and I to today, none of those characteristics had the ability to move the scale of heaven one fraction of an inch. And so ultimately, this is what Paul points to. He says, these things may have been good, and at one time I considered them gain. But then he goes on to say, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, the word loss there in Greek is actually a more violent word than what the uh, rudimentary sort of superficial understanding of loss in the English language communicates. It's really a violent loss. In fact, I believe this is supported in the next verse when he talks about the fact that he has suffered the loss of all things. This suffering, this loss did not come without a price. It demanded of him his own death. And we'll see this a little more uh, whenever we look at verse 10. So the Apostle Paul is saying that everything that I had an opportunity to consider as gain, I counted that as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. In verse 8 he says, Indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's done a cost-benefit analysis. He's looked at his meager contributions, which on the scale of human endeavors might be commendable. And then he sees the finished work of Christ on Calvary and he says, It's rubbish. It's useless. Everything that I may have considered gain, I now count loss. Why? For the surpassing worth, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. And so his hope, and he's redirecting uh, perhaps these retired military individuals who are now believers, who, who, who are enjoying their citizenship because of things that they accomplished while serving in the military. Or, or maybe a former Jews who were taught that their adherence to the law was what made them acceptable in the sight of God. He's addressing the church at Philippi, or perhaps the church at, in Hickson in the 21st century as well by way of application. He's addressing us, whatever we may look to in life, and say, that is what I bring to the table. Let us consider it rubbish. Let us consider it loss. And so Paul is saying that whatever I considered gain, I now count for loss that I may know Christ. And then in verse 9, he really lets the cat out of the bag when he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So here he's differentiating between the law, where he said in, in verse 7 that he was blameless in his reputation among his among his countrymen, among those who were Jews, those who knew the law. He said, I was blameless among them. But yet later, uh, whenever he is talking uh, to the church in Timothy in, in, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I am the chief of sinners. So what happened here, Paul? Were you truly blameless under the law? Did you have an upright and outstanding reputation? Or are you the chief of sinners? 
What happened was the Apostle Paul was able to understand righteousness not as man defines it, but as God defines it. And he saw that his very best effort, his best work, his greatest day was rubbish compared to the righteousness that is from God. Why? Because there is a difference between independent righteousness and dependent righteousness. And please hear me, and I'll, I'll repeat that, because this is the very heart of the gospel. This is the very heart of the Christian life. Often we fall into the trap of, of seeing the righteousness that we seek as an independent righteousness. Somehow God shows up, yes, he, he saves us, he sets us on the straight and narrow, then he leaves it to us to run the race. But the righteousness that comes from God is a dependent righteousness. In other words, it's alien. It's what theologians call alien, otherworldly. It's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't originate with us. We have no claim on it. The only way that we can stand righteous in God's presence, the only way that we stand righteous in his sight, is by the righteousness that comes from God. A righteousness that is accessible not because of the great deeds we've done or the pure lineage that we possess, but because of the righteousness of Christ and because faith in his finished work. Paul's very clear at the end of verse 9. He says this righteousness is from God and it depends on faith. In other words, it depends on God believing that God is able to take that which Christ deserved and give it to me. And that God did indeed in the death of Christ take that which I deserve and give it to Christ. Now, theologians call this the double imputation. The fact that our sins were assigned to him and his righteousness is assigned to us. But Paul here makes it the summary of his Christian experience. He points to it and says, this is the foundation stone. I don't look to my, the former things that I considered gain. I now count them as rubbish. The King James Version actually translates it dung, and I like that. He said, I count them as dung, refuse, something that once upon a time, maybe when I consumed it had benefit to me, but now that it's gone through my system, it's worthless. And so righteousness, not righteousness that originates from man, but righteousness that originates from God is something that you and I can only access through faith in Christ. So it's a dependent righteousness. It's a righteousness that we have because of what, who Christ is and what he has done. So Paul is very explicit that knowing Christ brings an end to self-reliance. We are not able to rely on ourselves. The arm of flesh is weak. The arm of flesh is insufficient of moving the door of heaven. We can only rely on God and on his grace. So knowing Christ, first and foremost, suggests that we reach a point that we no longer rely on ourself, that we no longer look to ourself for an independent righteousness, but that we rather look to the blood of Christ and his atoning work for a righteousness that is foreign, a righteousness that is alien, and a righteousness that is dependent. And so for the Apostle Paul, Christian confidence starts at the crossroads where self-reliance and dependent righteousness diverges. And oftentimes as believers, even today in the 21st century, our struggle 
is keeping those two paths apart. We want to make our righteousness something that is independent of God's good grace. Now, we don't do this consciously. We're far too reformed for that. We do it subconsciously by somehow believing that God's grace saves us and then sort of propels us in the right direction. But Paul corrects our thinking by saying, no, the summation of the Christian experience is relying on God and Christ and his finished work. Not relying on ourself. The end of self-reliance. So the, there's a progression in Paul's thought here in verses 8 through 9. A progression where he sees and he speaks of the greater worth of knowing Christ and the knowledge of Christ being the means through which true righteousness derives. And he points us as believers to understand that we cannot do it on our own and we should not take confidence in ourselves. Now, this is something that is countercultural for many reasons. In 1841, which several years ago, century and a half, almost two centuries ago, uh, there was a famous writer, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who many of you probably read in high school, you had to read. He wrote an essay called Self-Reliance. And in this essay, he made this following statement, and I quote, he said, man is his own star. And the so that can render an honest and perfect man commands all light. Our acts, our angels, are for good or ill, our fatal shadows that walk with us still. Now what happened less than a century after Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote those words? World War I. And the devastating impact of the loss of life that had never been experienced on that mass scale, militarily speaking, in human history. And so within American culture, there was a, a sense of cynicism that began to become bred, and it began to become part of the fabric of our society. And of course, if you're philosophically minded, you know that that gave birth to postmodernism, the belief that there are no absolutes, that because somehow and Nietzsche, who was one of the foremost postmodern philosophers, coined the phrase, God is dead, therefore anything is accepted. That's one path that becoming disgruntled with an over-realized realism leads to. That's one path that becoming disgruntled with ourselves, relying on ourselves, leads to. But there's another path, another alternative that we find here in the gospel. Instead of becoming full of cynicism and cynical, we are pointed to Christ, who is the perfect man, whose birth we just celebrated, who is God incarnate, who is man of true man and God of true God, who lived like you and I, who suffered the same passions, the same temptations, yet was without sin. And it's this Christ that knowing him enables us to have righteousness that is a dependent righteousness on God and not on ourselves. Second point there that the Apostle Paul is making is the end of self-reliance and the end of self-assertion. And we see this beautifully mentioned here in, in what I consider to be the, the heart of this passage, which is Philippians 3 verse 10, 
where the Apostle Paul has basically laid up his experience in the past by saying, look, once upon a time, I had confidence that all these characteristics was what justified me in the sight of God. And then he points people to the fact that they're rubbish, that they're meaningless, and points them to Christ and the fact that we should depend on him and him alone. And then he says in verse 10, after he makes this great statement that righteousness comes from God and it depends on faith, then in verse 10 he says, that I may know him. Now that, 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 that points back to the fact that Paul was suffering the loss of all things. Why was he suffering the loss of all things? Why was he willing to let all those good characteristics that he laid claim to, those wonderful points on his curriculum vitae, why was he willing to let them go? Why did he consider them rubbish? Yes, he, he said, I suffered the loss of all things that I may know Christ. And then he comes back to this idea, and in verse 10 he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Here the Apostle Paul says, the very heart of the Christian experience is not me asserting myself, but is knowing Christ, becoming like him in his death and sharing in his sufferings. So, what happens when we know Christ? What happens when we have this not only experiential, but this intellectual, this, this knowledge of who Christ is? And it's more than just a cerebral knowledge. Paul was not there speaking of some Gnostic fantasy that enables us to know the Son of God. And from that knowledge, then we somehow become like him. No, he was speaking not only of an intellectual knowledge, because after all, we believe that which we know, but also of an experiential knowledge, a deeper intimacy that... that is indicative of a relationship that is much deeper than simply information. It's deeper than knowledge that you and I obtain through reading books or that we demonstrate on standardized tests, but rather it is a knowledge that is experiential. That's why Paul, when he says that I may know him, he automatically puts himself into the process, the, the work of Christ, when he says, in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. This identification, this union with Christ, is later picked up in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God. So there's a flow here to knowing Christ. The first is the power of Christ's resurrection. The second is sharing in his sufferings, and the third is becoming like him in his death. Now, in these three characteristics, I believe we see an order of our justification. Because experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection is indicative of a heart that is dead in sin, which all of us are before regeneration occurs, before the Holy Spirit allows that which is dead to be brought back to life. And the Holy Spirit, of course, we know from Scripture, is the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And so by mentioning the fact that there is a power of Christ's resurrection, Paul is, I believe, here referencing the regenerative process in the heart of mankind. 
in the heart of those who believe that we must experience that regeneration before we have the ability to believe. And then he says, share in his sufferings. And this is ultimately where I, I want to lead us this morning, uh, the end of self-assertion. What was the suffering of Christ? Yes, it was an active suffering, a passive obedience. It was an active suffering on the cross, bearing the punishment that you and I deserve. But it was also sharing in the suffering of Christ, because in Christ, and particularly think of his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed, my father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In Christ, in the passion of Christ, what we see is this beautiful demonstration of the will of man submissive to the will of God. And if you think about the heart of sin, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, what is the heart of sin? It is the attempt to exert our will above the will of God. It is the attempt to try to do what we want instead of doing what God wants, which is why we were created. So on the cross and in the sufferings of Christ, we see the Son of Man submitting his will to the will of God, to the will of heaven. And in that submission, we must share in his suffering. This is why Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things. In other words, in this endeavor, I do not assert myself. I do not look to my desires or my will or what I seek to accomplish, but rather I look to the cross. As the old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Paul says, I do not assert myself. He, he points to the fact that by sharing in Christ's sufferings that there is a dying to the self, a dying to our desires, a dying to that which we want accomplished, and a submission to the work of God. Now, this does not mean that we can assign any redemptive qualities to our submission. And what I mean by that is our, our submission is not what saves us. Our submission itself is not what justifies us. Rather, the submission of Christ justifies. But the way that we know him the way that we identify with his sufferings, we share in his sufferings, as the Apostle Paul said, is by submitting our will to the will of heaven. Our submission is a supernatural response. I say that because before we can submit, our heart must be regenerated. Our heart must be brought back to life from the dead. It's dead in sin and it must be brought back to life to be submissive to Christ. So in the gospel... And this is where the Apostle Paul ultimately leaves the church at Philippi. In the gospel, there is no room for self-reliance. And there is no room for self-assertion. But rather, in the gospel, we see a dependence on God, a reliance on God, and a complete, all-consuming assertion of the cross. Not of the self, but of the finished work of Christ. Now, in different cultures, this message is less or more countercultural. And I'm reminded of uh, the Japanese culture. In Japan, they have a saying that it is the nail that protrudes that gets hammered down. And I've never been to Japan. My wife has, and she tells me that it's one of the best places she's been to. It's very clean. 
uh, very uniform. Everyone sort of knows their place and sort of falls in line and does their thing. And so it makes sense, once you consider their culture, that they would have that motto, that it's the nail that protrudes, the person who's different, the one who asserts themselves that gets hammered down. But looking at our own society, it's actually the opposite. Part of the moral fabric of our culture says that we must be distinct. We must stand out. In fact, if you're a business or if you're an, an, an athlete or if you're even a student, one thing you want to do is to be different. You want to stand out from the crowd. You want to convince the customer that you have something that your competitor does not have. Or you want to convince your coach or, or whomever, your teacher, that there's something that is different about you than others. And so we are brought up comparing ourselves constantly to someone else in an attempt to try to advance ourselves. And we're taught that this is the way forward. It's become part of our consciousness. But in Christianity, and the reason why this message is countercultural, is that knowing Christ, it does not mean that our will is overthrown. It does not mean that, as in Japan, that we are all taught submissiveness by this all-powerful being who, who demands that everyone walk a straight line. But rather, we do not assert ourselves because we are free by the grace of God and the enabling work of the Holy Spirit to choose that which is truly good. And that which is truly good comes from God. James talks about this when he says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of light. And since this is the purpose for which we were created, to pursue that which is good and to please and honor God, the desire to do that which is good is, in a sense, irresistible. It's something that once our, our heart is redeemed, we want to do, we strive to do. And so we do not strive to assert ourselves, but rather we seek to assert the cross Christ. All right, let's go to the third point for the sake of time and try to apply this pastorally to our lives today. So what does this mean for me? What does it mean that knowing Christ brings an end to my self-reliance and an end to self-assertion? How can our lives be changed by what the Apostle Paul is here sharing with the church of Philippi some 2,000 years ago? Well, I would suggest that you can apply Paul's message in three ways. First, let go of everything that you think makes you worthy of God's grace and forgiveness. Because it doesn't. Now, that is a much easier thing that is said than done. And oftentimes we live our lives subconsciously believing the opposite. But the way that we can apply the power of knowing Christ in our own life and fully understand what it means to live righteously in the eyes of God is to let go of everything that you think makes you worthy of God's grace and forgiveness. Secondly, forget about every way that you think you can improve. Now, I know this is timely considering the fact that at New Year's, many of us come up with a list of New Year's resolutions and maybe by the end of January, beat herself up because three-quarters of them have already failed. Um, but when you think of justification, when you think of being accepted by God, when you think of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, you must realize 
that oftentimes what we think we need to do to improve us becomes those characteristics that Paul said he suffered loss. It becomes those things that inadvertently we point to and we say, see God, maybe somehow I am deserving of forgiveness. Maybe somehow I am deserving of what Christ has done for me. And if we're not careful, in fact, the, the even, even the confession of that, there's, there's a, a dichotomous relationship between looking at our accomplishments, seeking to improve ourselves, thereby asserting ourselves as deserving of God's grace, and completely resigning to the fact that God and only God is the one who's righteous. God and only God is the one from whom true righteousness comes. And then thirdly, the way that we can apply this is by casting ourself on the mercy of Christ. And desire him, and please hear this, because oftentimes what I'm about to say is indicative of where we are in this process. Whether or not we have, have stood between the two roads that diverge, the road of, of having an independent righteousness and that of having a dependent righteousness, and whether or not we've somehow meshed the two, but cast yourself on the mercy of Christ and desire him more than you desire forgiveness. Desire Christ more than you desire forgiveness. Now, what do I mean by that? When I was young, and I don't know, maybe some of you grew up in the same, a similar Christian tradition as I did. But when I was young, I was taught that I needed Christ to avoid hell. I was taught that I had to repent and confess my sins, because if I failed to do so, then I would die and go to hell. And so oftentimes, Christ and his salvation, confession, became a fire escape for me. It, it, it became a way of avoiding hell instead of a way of enjoying life and realizing the, the full extent to which God created me. And so sometimes I think, and it's not that God cannot use hell and, hellfire and brimstone preachers, which some of you know what that is if you don't forget about it. But some of you do know what that is, probably are too, all too well. Um, but it's not that God cannot use that. Obviously he does. He's, he's sovereign. He uses a variety of means to bring people to him. But oftentimes we care more about being forgiven than we care about knowing Christ. And if we can hear the heart of what Paul is saying, he's saying, I seek to know him. Above all else, I seek to know him because he alone is righteous. And righteousness comes from him and him alone. Excuse me. So everything in our society says to us, come and make yourself a better man. It's a new day, try harder. Everything within us, everything around us, pop culture, Commercials on television, everything say, well, you're not as bad as you think you are. Just try harder tomorrow and everything will be okay. But the message of the gospel is not try harder. The message of the gospel is not today's a new day. Maybe you'll do better. The message of Christ is come and die. When he seeks disciples, identifying with the death of Christ... It's the doorway to discipleship. Failing to assert ourselves, not seeking to assert ourselves, but rather seeking to assert God, seeking to know Christ, seeking to uplift His work to promote the cross in our lives. 
instead of polishing our own buttons, instead of looking at our stars on the board and saying, I'm not so bad, because you're worse than you think you are. All of us are. But we're not worse than Christ knows us to be. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. And so it should be liberating for us as we stand on the threshold of a new year to know that we don't have to try to make ourselves better. Because in the grand scheme of eternity, we know that there's not one thing we can do to move the scale of heaven a fraction of an inch in our favor. And so what do we do? We look to Christ. We embrace him. Our prayer becomes Paul's prayer when he says that I may know him and share in his sufferings, knowing the power of his resurrection and becoming like him in his death, transformed to the image of Christ. Now, in conclusion, there's something interesting, scripturally speaking, about the phrase knowing somebody. And earlier I mentioned that knowing Christ is both an intellectual knowledge and also an experiential one. But when we think of the Hebrew mind, which, which remember the Apostle Paul, even though he was writing to a Gentile church, he, he was a Hebrew, and so he was swimming in those waters. And when you think of the Hebrew mind, the word to know somebody, oftentimes in the Old Testament and in the New, because of its, or rather, and in Greek, because of, of uh, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the, the words that were used for the word to know in the Old Testament became the same words that, or similar words that were used for knowledge in the New. But to know somebody, yes, meant that you knew of them, that you were acquainted with them, that you were familiar with them, but also it had a deeper connotation. In fact, it was an expression used as a euphemism to explain a relationship that was unique and distinct. Think about Adam. In, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and they brought forth a son. And so to know Christ, and it's not coincidental that, that God uses language indicative of a relationship between a husband and wife throughout the New Testament to explain and describe the relationship between Christ and his church. Because knowing Christ means that we are united with him that we are united with Christ. And so ultimately that is where Paul is, is leading us and directing our attention in verse 10 when he says that I may know him. And it's not a knowledge that stands alone, but a knowledge that requires me entering in and experiencing the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then in verse 11, seeking for the resurrection from the dead, the day when we shall be like him. When, when mortality shall put on immortality. So as Christians, we are married to Christ. We are yoked to him. And so as we think about a new year, as we think about our, our lives, let us not strive to rely on ourselves or to assert ourselves, because knowing Christ means that we too have ceased our fruitless endeavors of, of self-reliance and, and self-assertion. And that we have taken on the righteousness that is his alone. The righteousness that we live in, the power for righteous living, casts us on the finished work of Christ. 
And this empowers us, ultimately, for true righteous living. Not righteousness as it's defined by man or by the world, but righteousness as defined by God. A superlative righteousness. A righteousness that is the very epitome of righteousness. And it's an alien righteousness to you and I. But it empowers us for living, and ultimately, it gives us confidence. Confidence that is so desperately needed in a world full of despair and despondency, in a world that is cynical because they too understand that you cannot rely solely on yourself, even if you use yourself as the measure of all things. And it casts us, it points us to Christ and his finished work, enabling us to live a life that is holy, that is acceptable, and that is pleasing in the eyes of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have completed everything that is required for our justification in the sight of God. And Lord, even though our natural tendency is to often go back to our own way and rely on our own goodness, we know and we confess with the Apostle Paul that it's rubbish, that it's refused, that it's dung, that it's worthless. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would enable the cry of our hearts to be that we may know you, that we may know you and have a relationship with you that is transformative, a relationship that turns our hearts towards you and casts us upon you, a relationship that empowers us for living a life that is truly righteous with your righteousness and that is truly holy with your holiness, that is separate, that is separated unto you for good works to glorify your name and not to assert ourselves. Lord, help us as we face a new year. Give us grace and give us consistency that each day our prayer would be that we may know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings, that we may become like you in your death and raised to newness of life. We pray this in Jesus' name.